Alrighty, turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, Genesis 12, verses 1, 2, and 3, Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3, Abraham's gospel, Abraham's gospel, the gospel as it was presented to Abraham. We heard in our New Testament reading how the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham, and here we have it before us in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Gospel is an interesting word. It's funny how in English words can have so many varied meanings. By the word gospel, we can be referring to a particular type of writing found in the New Testament. You know, the tax collector turned evangelist, Matthew, wrote the first gospel in the New Testament, at least the way it's put in canonical order. That's one way to use gospel. Another way is to speak of a genre of music. In 2018, Snoop Dogg released a gospel album. I'm not kidding, that's true. By the way, his mom is an evangelist, and his given name is not Snoop Dogg, believe it or not. It's Calvin. That's interesting. So we can use gospel as a genre of literature or as a genre of music, and there are times we use the word gospel simply to mean truth. Officer, I wasn't speeding. That's the gospel, I swear it. We simply mean by the word gospel that it is truth. Now, you know, in seminary, they tell us to, to start sermons with something interesting to, to draw your listener in, kind of a hook to get them to catch them. And I thought an etymology was a good way to get things going. You know, etymologies are always great hooks for an audience. So you can tell I paid attention that day in seminary. <coughs> anyway, uh, the etymology of gospel... We've looked at some of the ways we use it, but it's worth looking at where it comes from. It's rooted in the word good spell. You can hear that, good spell, gospel. You can see how those sounds evolve. We know the word good, virtuous, beneficial, advantageous. The, good, the word good doesn't change much. The word spell may not jump out at you at first, but it does make some sense. The, the word spell historically meant to say something out loud, to pronounce it in a clear way. If you don't understand what I'm telling you, do you need me to spell it out for you? See how I used it to explain it? Come on, that was clever. <laughs> Work with me, people. Gospel, good spell, to say something out loud that is good that is beneficial. This, of course, is why we often abbreviate the word gospel as good news. And that's a fitting summary and abbreviation of it. It is good news. So, enough with the etymologies. Why do I give you that background? Because if we don't understand what the word gospel means, we might miss it in our text. If we don't understand that the gospel is not a, a formula for things you do, it's not a prescription you follow by which certain things will happen. It's not like those old, you know, remember in the early days of email, you'd get those things that, you know, if you, you know, take this email, and if you pray this prayer and you forward this email to 40 other people, then whatever you prayed will come true. That's not how it works. That's not how the gospel works. It is news. It is information. It is something good that has been spoken out and said. 
With that as our background, let's consider Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Amen. Let's pray. Spirit of God, even as you proclaimed these good things to Abraham all those many, many years ago, proclaim them anew to our hearts today. Let us hear this good news. And in hearing it, let us appraise you in thanksgiving, love you in thanksgiving, serve you in thanksgiving, in recognition for the good news that you have brought. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The world is all in chaos. Everything is a mess. Conditions are unlivable. But into that situation, God speaks his word of power, and order begins to take shape. Waters part. Sky above, seas below. Another word of power, another parting of the waters, and the dry land appears. Order and livability begin to take shape upon the earth. Plants appear, animals begin to fill the earth. But still, there is a great deal of chaos. It is into this that God again imparts some order. Carving a garden orchard out of the tangle of the wilderness. And into this garden orchard in Eden, God puts us. Why? Well, the text told us back in Genesis 1 to cultivate and keep that garden, to develop it and protect it, to expand it but not exploit it so that there would be space and provision for the children we were to have. Remember, the text goes on, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. Rule over it and have dominion upon the earth. We were to expand the land, which was livable, and then we were to fill that land. And the two go hand in hand. We need the help of more people to make the expansion possible, and we need the expansion to make room for more people. And so it was that man was to begin to do this God-like work. Created in God's image, we were given God-like work to do. As he had carved out Eden, so we were supposed to go into the wilderness and carve out more gardens and orchards and livable spaces. As he had made human beings, we were to make human beings. God had given great power, great authority, great dominion in the spheres of economics and social uh, uh, structure to human beings. But again, the world is all chaos. Again, everything is a mess. 
Again, conditions are unlivable, but this time it's God who brought those things about. God flooded the earth. It was God's doing. God caused the previously separated waters to coalesce once again on the surface of the earth and to return it to its primeval, chaotic state. Why? Ultimately, because in addition to being given God-esque responsibility in the economic and social realms, God had also called on man to become God-esque in the moral and ethical realm. You may eat of every tree in the garden, including the tree of life. The tree right there in the middle of the garden. The tree that symbolizes living, existing in a right relationship with me. The tree that was a picture of what it meant to be in accord with your maker. You may eat of any tree in the garden, including that wonderful tree. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For to eat of that tree is to be out of accord with me. To eat of that tree is to be uh, out of fellowship with me. To eat of that tree is not life, but death. For life is existing in relationship with God as he created us to exist, and death is existing outside of that relationship with God. And so the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a tree that would bring death if they ate of it. It was a tree that would bring a fuller uh, experience of humanity if they didn't eat of it. Had they not eaten from it, had they obeyed God, they would have acquired another level of God-likeness. For they would have had an experiential knowledge of goodness. They were created without any sin. But they were lacking actual performed righteousness. When we say God is good, God is righteous, God is holy, God is perfect, we don't mean merely that he has not sinned. We mean that he has done all that is necessary to meet those qualifications. His perfections are not completed in the abstract, but in the real. He really loved so perfectly that he is perfect in his love. He really has acted so good, uh, goodly? I was about to say goodly. He's acted with such goodness that we can rightly call him good. And created in his image, created in his likeness, we were to do likewise. We were to obey. And by not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we were to acquire the experience of righteousness, of having done what was appropriate and fitting to our place in the world. But we did not do that. And that's why the flood waters raged on the earth 
That's why there was a return to chaos, and once again things were unlivable. Death reigned upon the earth because mankind chose death. Instead of recognizing the folly of our choice and begging God's forgiveness, we human beings just double down on ourselves and our own view of things and keep on walking away from God. We keep on doing it our own way. And in so doing, spiritual death became rampant upon the earth. But we couldn't see it. So God made physical death rampant upon the earth so that we would see it. The world is all chaos again and everything is a mess again because man didn't learn the lessons from the flood. And so chaos exploded into our social interactions. People literally could no longer understand one another. After the flood, God set about again making the earth habitable. And again he set man over the earth to take dominion and to fill it up. He gives to Noah precisely the same commands that he gave to Adam. Fill the earth, have dominion over it. And we did part of that. We made a whole lot of people. But the dominion thing was still giving us some trouble. For our dominion was always to be under his absolute and final dominion. Our dominion was to be in the sphere assigned to us, not in the spheres of our choosing. And so what do we do in the aftermath of the flood? We say to ourselves, it's not enough that we have dominion here on the earth. We're going to build a tower which reaches into the heavens. We're going to ascend that tower. We're going to ascend ascend into the heavens, and we're going to take dominion over the heavens as well. Not space. This wasn't an effort to get into space. Heavens in the sense of the domain of God. Okay? And so we try once again to exercise dominion out of accord with what God said. Part and parcel with that effort was the desire to make a name for themselves. In other words, to seek glory. The pursuit of glory becomes something of a theme. Mankind is not content to play the role for which we were created. Rather, we usurp God's divine prerogative to tell us what to do. And like, you know, at Babel, we tried to uh, uh, usurp his realm of dominion. And today we still do the same thing things. Thankfully, what we saw at Babel was that God often intervenes. He does not always let us be as sinful as we would like to be. There are times he thwarts our sinful efforts. In mercy and in grace, he thwarted the efforts at Babel so that at least some would be forced to reconsider what they were doing, to reevaluate their efforts and to turn back to the true God. Nevertheless, our failures keep bringing chaos upon the world. 
And at each turn, rather than making a glorious name for ourselves, we make an infamous name for ourselves. History is replete with the efforts of people, with the efforts of those who desired to make a name for themselves and for by which history remembers them shamefully, sinfully, wickedly, evil. It is a bit of a depressing story. And we are at a point in the unfolding narrative of Genesis where we could be quite discouraged. We even saw last week how this man Abram, though he nominally is doing what God said, and though we know in the end he becomes a faithful believer, he got off to a rough, rough start. We saw his many, many sins, his failure to obey the commands that were given, his failure to immediately abandon his old gods, his, his uh, sinful relationship with many, many women other than his wife, Sarah his sinful effort to make Lot his heir and adopt him rather than trusting God to provide an heir. And we look forward even to his later sinful efforts to provide an heir for himself. It is a discouraging story. But at Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3, God breaks into history with good news, with a good spell, with a pronouncement of something beneficial, something wonderful, something helpful. God intervenes to curb the frustration that man has been going through, unable to do what he wants to do, unable to do what he was ordained and called and created to do. God is now going to do it for him. Abram was not going to have to accomplish these things. God does not come down and give Abram the path to fulfilling his creation mandates. God does not come down and give Abram the formula by which he might fulfill the creation mandates. God steps in and tells Abram, I'm going to do it for you. And after a couple millennia of frustration, that is indeed good news. That is indeed gospel. Let's take a look at it more closely. Verse 1. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. No longer is the command, go out from the garden and establish more garden. No longer is the command, go into the wilderness and take dominion. God's word to Abram is akin to his creation word. Just as God established the garden in Eden for Adam and Eve, God is now saying to Abram, I will establish for you a place. I've got a place for you, a prepared place. Lift your eyes, Abram, 
off from your surroundings, off from your here and now. Lift your eyes and look what I have for you. Dream of it. Long for it. Look for it. Head toward it. God is going to take care of the dominion. Adam was commanded to have dominion. And I'll remind us, several times that we've been going through Genesis, when we've gotten to the word earth, I have reminded you that it's that important Hebrew word eretz, which can also mean land. Now we find ourselves in a passage that has the word land, and I'm going to tell you it's the same word. Just as Adam was told to have dominion over eretz, the earth slash land, so Abram is being told that God is going to give him Haaretz, the earth slash land. And I want to suggest to us that we need some uniformity in our understanding of this. If we have been understanding the word Eretz, the word earth, to be fairly global up till now, if Adam was to have dominion over all the earth, then I think it appropriate to take that same view here. Yes, eventually, to the descendants of Abram, God will later lay out some specific details about the place that he's going to give them and put some borders on it. But let's not for a minute imagine that the God of all the universe, the God who had the power to speak everything into being, the God who had the ability to bring about whatever he wanted, let's not imagine for one moment that it was his plan for his people to give them one little tiny sliver of land between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea. It was a down payment. It was the starting place. It was the launching spot from which the people of God were supposed to take over the world and have dominion. This word here is the same word we've been seeing all along. And it has that same global flavor. This is good news indeed. You know, we all long for a place in this world. Some of us are blessed with a home, a yard, a a small place that is our own. But no sooner do do we acquire it than we immediately find ourselves uh, uh, scrambling to pay for it, fighting to keep it up, fighting to keep it under repair. It becomes not a place of rest and relaxation for us in this earth, but it quickly becomes a place of thorns and thistles. Our land, if we're fortunate enough to have any land, never really feels like a place where we have dominion. But it is rather a place of struggle. To Abram, God said, I have a place for you, and I will show you the way to it. And we must not make the mistake of thinking this is strictly physical and temporal and thisworldly. Look over at Genesis, let me jump ahead a little bit here. Look over at Genesis 23, 17. Look at Genesis 23, verse 17 and following. Genesis 23, 17 and following. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah 
which was to the east of Marm, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, throughout this whole area, was made over to Abram, Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Mechpelah, east of Marm, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. That is all the land Abraham would ever own in Canaan. It's like you spend your whole life dreaming about a place at the shore. You save up for a place at the shore. You finally buy the place at the shore, and all you do there is bury your spouse. Not exactly a place of celebration, now is it? The promise of God to Abraham was not a temporal, this world promise. For if it was, it failed horribly. But it was always a next world promise. It's why God, why Jesus picks up on this with his own disciples. Remember, they were struggling with the this world question. Over and over and over again, the disciples look at Jesus and say, is now the time of the kingdom? Is now when you're going to throw off Rome and reestablish David's throne and let us have our own place on the earth? And Jesus is getting ready to die, and he knows that they're looking for that place in the here and now. And he says to them in John 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. My, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. The place proclaimed in the good news to Abram, the place proclaimed in the good news that Jesus said to his disciples, is a place of ultimate rest, ultimate peace, ultimate dominion. It is the place provided for us by God. It is not a place belonging to this world, to the here and now. I want to remind you, if you find yourself feeling like you're not at home in this world, that's really not a sign that you're having trouble with the gospel. It's probably a sign the gospel is taking a hold in your life. For we are not to be at home in this world. We are to be constantly longing for the place prepared for us. Just as Abraham did. For we read where it says, by faith, Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to uh, receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him to the same promise. Now pay attention to this next verse. Why did Abram do that? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham 
did not see the promise to him as a temporal promise to be fulfilled in this life, in the here and now, but rather the promise of a place was a promise for the world to come. When we are out of place in this world, when we feel ill at ease in our society, that's actually a good thing. For the Apostle John warns us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Your unease with your place now is because you have been prepared for a place where God reigns directly, immediately, with all the glory and honor due him, with all the obedience due him. That's the place for which we have been prepared and which Christ has prepared for us. And that's why we feel out of place. Back to Genesis 12, uh, uh, verses 1, 2, and 3. Looking at verse 2. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Just as we long for a place to be, so also we human beings long for belonging. We want a place, but we also want a people. We want to have someone to whom we belong. We long to be amongst people. This was this way from the beginning. What's the first not good pronouncement in the Bible? After God saw that it was good, and 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 all that he had made was very good, he then turns around and says, what? It is not good for the man to be alone. And to the man he gave a helpmate, Eve, and to them he blessed them and said, be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. You're not meant to be alone. You're not even meant to be just two of you. You need a people to whom you can belong, with whom you can be a part. This is why we long for places where we can belong. And this is why it is a most grievous sin and a most heinous tragedy when families come apart at the seams, when fathers abuse children, when mothers neglect them, when children dishonor and disobey their parents, when siblings fight. For it is the family that God created is supposed to be our place where we belong, where we fit in, where we have those with whom we, we understand each other. This is precisely why the image of family is applied to the church. Because our own families fail us. Our churches do too. But the church ought to be a place where we are striving to be that place of belonging. Looking at those around us and saying, how do they maybe feel like they're on the outside? And what can I do to pull them in? What can I do to make them? I have Christ. They have Christ. We share that in common and that's everything. So let's start there and build a family, a place of belonging, a people to whom we can belong. Adam and Eve were to take dominion and they were to reproduce. They were to fill the earth with others like themselves 
in the likeness of God. But in the aftermath of the fall, there was pain in having children. Not just physical pain in birthing children, but pain in having children. That is, in being their parent and they your child. This, painful, this, this is a painful world. Now, the promise to Abram is to make him a great nation. Great nations require social interactions, personal relationships that work. Great nations require leaders who can lead and followers who will follow. Great nations require people who will work together, who will set aside their own personal preferences to strive for the common good. And that is almost impossible in this world. But that's the promise to Abram. And again, it's not a promise to be fulfilled in Abram's life. If you look at the gospel and you say, well, it's got to happen in my life now, you are missing the gospel. For when Abram dies, when he becomes Abraham, and when he dies, he has three offspring in the, in the, the line. He has Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. And he doesn't yet know that Esau is not going to be part of the line. That's it. Hardly a great nation. And yet that's the promise to Abram. And how do we see that begin? You know, over time, do we see it immediately getting fulfilled? Well, no. We see this constant problem of the nation not being all that great. They get to the border of the promised land. Twelve spies go in. Only two believe that God will give it to them. So they wander around in the desert till they all die. And then they go into the uh, promised land to begin conquering it, and they get off to a good start so long as Joshua's there. But once Joshua dies, what happens? It all peters out. They stop doing what they're supposed to be doing, and they don't take the rest of the land. They do what's right in their own eyes. They are uh, 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 overthrown and, and, and overrun by the nations around them because they never drove those nations out and because they keep sinning against the Lord. But then God raises up a king, King David, who's going to unite them and to make them a great nation, to fulfill this promise. And what happens? Ten nations, ten of the tribes, rebel against the house of David. Only two stay loyal. It's not a great nation. And then what happens? We see times when God says, has to say to Elijah, well, I've kept 7,000 who have not bowed the, knee to na- bowed the knee to Baal. Out of millions. And we see this constant doctrine of the remnant, of this tiny little bit that actually is what they're supposed to be, believing what they're supposed to believe, living what they're supposed to live, and they get taken into captivity. And then Zerubbabel begins to lead them back, and it's going to be restoration time. But only a tiny fraction decide they're going to leave Babylon and go back with Zerubbabel. Most of them stay behind in Babylon. And it's just a few thousand people trying to rebuild the nation. But then Jesus comes on the scene, and of course they're all going to follow him, and he's going to make these huge crowds. I love John chapter 6. It's really quite an interesting uh, account. It opens with Jesus feeding the 5,000. 5,000 men plus women and children. Probably 15,000 or more people there. John 6 closes with just the 12. 
Jesus has whittled 15,000 down to 12. And he's not even sure what those 12 are going to do because John 6 closes with, what about you guys? Are you also going to leave me? And of course, one of those 12 betrays him. And then the New Testament churches, problem after problem after problem after problem, sin after sin after sin, strife after strife, split after split, argument after argument, Jew against Gentile, slave against free, all kinds of strife in the church. And yet somehow, in the midst of all of that, you know, God said to Abram, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Remember back in chapter 10, all those different clans and families that have filled the earth? Despite all the problems that there seems to be, what do we read in Revelation? And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Despite all appearances, despite all the smallness, despite all the the remnants, despite all of the, the people who abandon, somehow God is working faithfully in and amongst this world that he is gathering for himself a people of which we get to be a part someday, of which we get to actually be with those with whom we will connect. We'll, they'll think like us and we like them. We'll be able to communicate effectively to them. We'll be able to express ourselves to them and they will understand us and we will understand them. We will finally have the social relationships so many of us long for now. Because God is faithfully keeping the good news he pronounced to Abram. Good news, God says, I will give you a place to be, and I will give you a people amongst whom you can be. And I will work through you so that all the families of the earth will be blessed. But it isn't now. Abram. It's what will come in the future. Why? Why is it that way? Why is the gospel something out in the future? Why is it not something granted and given to us right now? Why can't we enjoy that place of rest right now? Why can't we enjoy the relationships unaffected by sin right now? Why can't we bask in all the the richness of the gospel right here and right now. And I will remind you that it's always been a waiting game. From day one, we were created to wait upon the Lord. Go way back to what we talked about with Adam and Eve and those trees. If you eat of that tree, you will die. But God does not spell out what will happen otherwise. You've just got to trust him. You've got to obey him. You've got to move forward on faith. 
You've got to believe that he is going to do good by you and good for you. Even in the garden before sin, our relationship to God was based on faith. We must take him at his word. Not trying to accomplish these things on our own. For when we try to save ourselves by our good works, I was listening to a parenthesis here. I was listening to a preacher this week on one. I don't remember if I was running or biking or wherever I was out doing something, and and he made a really interesting comment. He suggested to his congregation, and and I think I'm going to suggest this to us: police yourself for a month or so. Watch your own conversation. How often do you find the need to either say to yourself or to others all the good things you've done? How often do you find yourself making sure the other people know the good things you've been a part of? And that preacher was suggesting that because what are, when push comes to shove, when we really boil it down, way too many of us still hoping in our works. That's what we lean on. That's what we go to. When we've got to give an answer, that's what we look at. When somebody in our life comes to us and says, when my wife comes to me and says, you're being a jerk, what does my answer tend to be? I'm not as bad as that husband over there. My answer needs to be, you're right. Praise God, I'm resting on the gospel of Jesus. I've got nothing else. I've got to wait on him. I can't get to that righteousness on my own. If I eat of the tree, I'm going to mess it all up. I've just got to wait and trust him to bring it home for me. I have to have the good news, the proclamation that he's going to do it, that he's providing that place for me to rest someday, that he's providing that people for me to be a part of someday, that he is going to take me and put me in that crowd. That's what I've got to hope in. Like Abraham, looking forward to the city of God, that's what you and I need to be doing. Looking forward to the city of God. But I will remind you, as I often do, we have what Abram did not have. We have the knowledge of the price paid to make that happen. We have an understanding of the down payment, the earnest money that God was willing to lay on our lives. We know the lengths he would go to. Abram had to accept this as an abstract truth. We can look at the real suffering of Jesus, the real death of Jesus, and say a God who would do 
that is surely going to follow through and do all of this for me. The gospel to Abraham, as we saw in our New Testament reading, is the gospel to all who are of the faith of Abraham. All who will wait for those promises of a place and a people to be a part of. All who will rest in that have it. It's theirs. Because you cannot get there on your own. To do so is to eat of the tree. If you are waiting for that reality promised to Abram, then the gospel is yours. And that's good news. Let's pray. Lord, we do not deserve your gracious salvation. You gave us a chance in the garden and we blew it. You gave us a chance after the flood and we blew it. You have given us chance after chance after chance and we have blown it over and over and over again. And yet, you are a good and gracious and loving and kind God who has inserted yourself into the history of this world and said, I'm going to get it done for you. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to bring it about and make it real. So let us just believe that. Let us just relax in that. Wait for that. Realize that. Thank you for sending Jesus so that we could see the length you were willing to go to, so that we could understand the mechanism by which you were going to make it happen so that we could have insights into the amazing grace and glory of the Christ who would do what it took to save us. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for making that known to us. Thank you for stepping into our lives, some of us through parents who taught us this from day one, some of us later in life when others stepped in by your hand and told us, one way or another, you pull this into yourself. We thank you for that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.